Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 172 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I am Steve Vladek, and Bobby, the Supreme Court is still going. <laughs> it's like the Energizer Bunny. They didn't even get all their opinions out yet. Going and going and going. Uh, is it is it so obvious that um, not having any exciting plans for where they get to go spend the summer that they might as well just stay there taking their time dragging out the most complex cases? I mean, this is the question. You know, the on the one hand, everyone's obviously right to point out. You know, they they canceled the March and April argument sessions for COVID. Um, right, they had these May arguments. They're you know two months is about as fast as they ever move, and all eight of the cases that they still haven't decided yet are from that May session. On the other hand, Bobby, they canceled their March and April sessions. Like, you know, those were 20 cases they didn't end up having to decide. And so I guess I'm a, I'm a little, um, miffed is not the right word. I'm a little surprised that this is dragging past July 4th, that we're going to have merits decisions from the court after July 4th for the first time since 1986, a banner year. <laughs> um, and that, you know, if they go past next Tuesday, it'll be the latest they've gone since 1974 when... They were kind of busy that July dealing with the Watergate tapes. Um, so, you know, I don't, it's, it's, I, I don't love this look for the court, but it's hard to blame them because they don't, you know, what, where are they going to go? I know. Well, and if you're not a court watcher, the idea that it matters a great deal, just, you know, quite when they get it out over the summer, I, I get it. That doesn't resonate for most people, but there is always a sense, there's always a sense of like, come on, just, just finish your work. Get after it. Whereas if you're someone who has to spend, you know, sort of hours of each day they do anything on a conference call, you're ready for them to be done. I, I think when you're a professional court watcher and public commentator like you are, uh, that is understandable that it gets your goat. Uh, that won't be the last thing on this episode that gets your goat, I'm sure. Oh, we're full, we're full, we're full of goat getting today. We're full of goats. Uh, we've, got, we've got the bounty, uh, bounty gate. Uh, to talk about. So we'll start with uh, Russia. Yeah, when, you, when you say bounty gate, I still, I think of the, you know, I think of Sean Payton. Oh, right. That was, the, what was the claim that, that, that there was a bounty for taking for, out for t- opposing was, quarterbacks on the New Orleans defense, Saints defense? players were paid bounties for knocking offensive players out of the game. Was that ever proven? And did, did the NFL take any action? There was lots of disciplinary. I mean, Payton was suspended for a year. So, so you're saying that when the bounties were discovered, someone took action after learning about it. <laughs> okay, I see, this, I see a pattern. The, uh, uh, the NFL, how the NFL would have handled the Bounty Gate scandal if it were the Trump administration. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about what's in and out with the Bounty situation. Um, we have previously noted that in the Hassoun case, we were heading towards a big development. We got a big development, now we're ready to talk about it. Um, this USA Patriot Act detention provision is getting its first round of uh, tire kicking, or shall we say butt kicking, in the courts. Although, um, now that I've had the chance to really dig into it, I'm not sure how much the provision itself is getting butt kicking, so much as the government's evidentiary case. I was going to say, I think, I think this is more an example of, of factual defects in the government's presentation exactly. than legal ones. Right, well, like the headlines, kind of the quick, the quick takes were all, you know, problem with the provision. It's really the problem with the case. Um, we need to talk about the second superseding indictment against Julian Assange, which uh, dropped uh, actually about a week and a half ago. Uh, it's pretty interesting, adds some additional, very interesting factual dimensions to the allegations against Assange. Does not add new charges, but I'm going to argue here in a minute that it, it provides further distancing between this case as a potential precedent for 
possible future cases that involve traditional journalism, and that's an important distinction. Um, what else have we got? We've got legislative proposals, not in the form of the NDAA. The NDAA, we are going to wait till we've got uh, the, the final dust settling on all the amendments in the Senate bill and, and a firm grip on what happened more recently with the, uh, the House bill. And then we'll talk about what's at stake as we move into the, uh, the conference process and, and the ultimate veto showdown, perhaps, with the president. Instead, we're going to talk about the... Uh, this that veto threat is so stupid. <laughs> so we'll talk about it a little bit, no doubt, because there we can at least take we can we can at least talk about the particular provisions that have that have sparked the president's ire already. But what we will talk about in detail is the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act, the Lead Act, which is at long last cards on the table from uh, those who would like statutory intervention on the going dark problem. So we'll unpack sort of how that works or how it might work, while noting that. I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that it's going to get out of the house. Nope. So this is more like an early marker and by no means something people should expect to be uh, become law anytime soon. But we're still going to talk about it because why not? Um, then we're going to head over to the Supreme Court where we have some decisions to note, some uh, cert grants to take note of, and we'll do uh, a tour through a bunch of different cases under that heading. And then we'll step over to the Ninth Circuit so we can talk about a border wall ruling there Two. for wrapping up with uh, some frivolity where we will not throw away our shot. Sound good? Is that, is that, that's the only, uh, that's the only, the only uh, uh, teaser about what the frivolity is? I think it's the only teaser needed because it wasn't a very subtle one. Or a very well thought through one. Is it the room where it happened, Bobby? We, we're not in the same room. The, 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 the Zoom where it happened. Zoom where it happened. Could that be a, a show title? <laughs> The Zoom where it happened. All right, I'll forget that. Why don't we we jump in? Let's let's say something about the bounties. Uh, trying to tease out any legal questions that are in uh, this story. Obviously, we could talk for an hour about the the overarching aspects of this story. But we're talking here about the revelation. I believe the scoop originated with the New York Times. Is that right? Friday night. Right. So New York Times has a scoop about the the possibility, indeed, as they reported the fact that. Uh, there was intelligence indicating that GRU, Russia's uh, military intelligence arm, and a particular group within it that's also associated with things like the Sergei Skripal attempted assassination, um, that that particular unit was working with the Taliban paying bounties uh, for killing American soldiers, I believe actually specific ones, in, at least in some instances. And the question was, uh, or, the, or the suggestion in the story was, and that this was determined by the IC and that there was no executive branch response or no White House response from it. And then this was followed by a series of uh, overt and then behind the scenes, back and forth, trying to keep the story at a distance. I believe the latest round of White House statements on this <laughs> concedes that, okay, so it may have been in the president's daily brief, but only in the written part and that it, the words themselves weren't spoken aloud in the briefing itself, in the oral aspect of it, um, which of course, you know, the first thing to say about that is is how how unsettling it is that the written PDB might go unread, and indeed, it's not surprising, but still disturbing. Um, and then, equally disturbing, let's assume that it's true, because I, I can well imagine it might be that the briefer did not dare to elevate this to the spoken part of the briefing because of perhaps concern about. Uh, how it might have been received, if that's the case, and that's speculative, I don't know, but if that was the case, that's terribly disturbing. You can't have filtering in that setting. Um, 
Another possibility is that the briefer, for some other reason, uh, failed. Perhaps, uh, perhaps some sense that the intel wasn't reliable enough, or something like that, and, or for whatever reason, neglected to orally present it. If it wasn't actually filtered on purpose for fear of Trump's reaction, that's a real problem with the briefing. If it was filtered for fear of Trump's reaction, that's both a problem with the briefing and a problem with the customer in chief. I mean, every single version of this story is problematic, right? That's, like, the, that's the thing. It's like I mean, there is no good version of this story. Right. I mean, like, I mean I, I've lost track of which explanation we're on to now, but like, and I've lost track of how many different people have probably lied about this, but I don't even care anymore. Like, just there's no clean, happy, we did this right version of the story. Like the best case scenario for the president is that he is stunningly incompetent at his job. And the worst case scenario is much, much, much worse. I, I, the best case scenario, I, I disagree a little bit. I think the best case scenario for the president is that the uh, briefer uh, quite wrongfully neglected to elevate this information to his attention. He still looks terrible for not reading the brief, but if the pattern in practice over time has been that he never reads the brief, incumbent on the briefer for something that's important to put it out there. Uh, and so either way though, it's, it's a terrible circumstance. What about the legal implications though? The national security law implications, you know, one, one, a listener, uh, tweeted at us asking, by the way, uh, doesn't this have implications for the associated forces prong of the AUMF? If you are putting money into the directly into the hands of, of the Taliban an AUMF covered organization. I mean, it's material support, right? And you're paying them in order to facilitate attacks in theater using military force. Um, strictly speaking, that certainly seems like at least as concrete a set of actions and intentions as we've seen with some of the other uh, associated forces. And so it's not implausible, however ridiculous it might sound as it's sort of the, the larger strategic relationship with the United States and Russia, it does seem to call up the prospect of saying that technically speaking, the AUMF is applicable vis-a-vis Russia now, at least in that context, which, you know, doesn't mean anyone's going to do anything about it. Of course, of course, the executive branch isn't going to do anything, let alone you start a war with Russia. No, no president Bobby has ever been stronger on Russia. Don't you know? (laughs) Define stronger on Russia. (laughs) Must I? Hold on, I'm I'm putting my headphones on because the volume I'm not hearing you very well. Oh, yeah. Should Let's I, see. Should I, maybe maybe I'm too far from my microphone. Maybe so, but normally it's louder than this. So hopefully the the sound. Am I, am I louder now? Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. So let me. Do you normally ha- do you normally have the Yeti and now you're using the? Uh... I have the Yeti still, but it's a, it's I've, I've I have I'm in a different configuration because I'm actually recording today in our in our uh, in law suite. Ah, okay. So it was making a significant difference on the volume. So I'm afraid for listeners, maybe the first part of the show, we were imbalanced, but hopefully now we'll be... Uh... I don't know. Given my normal volume, we might've been perfectly balanced. Now we're back to our normal... Now, why is he shouting all the time? Uh, is that better? Uh, yeah, I think so. Here, I'll take the headphones off. Hello. Yeah. Hey. Oh, hi. Hey, you sound great. Okay. All right. So, okay. So the AMF, it's kind of fun to play the academic game, but it is a reminder that there still is the 2001 AMF. There is this topic of... Uh, how other entities can become can come within its scope by joining into the fight. Um, and there is this uh, argument to be made, not that anyone's going to act on it. It's also interesting to compare it to the rationale behind the United States use of lethal force against Soleimani, against the Iranian general, uh, in response to his, uh, his, I would argue, rather similar role 
alleged, I think quite truthfully and accurately, alleged to have been uh, driving proxy forces to try to carry out attacks on American and allied forces in Iraq. But again, that's not to say we therefore should use a drone strike if possible to kill the head of the GRU. However, note the analogy. Note that the argument, if it applies in the one circumstance, surely seems to apply in the other, and it's not the law that's providing the breaking function, it's policy judgment, diplomatic judgment, et cetera. Can I say one more thing about that on the policy side also, which is, um, you know, so much of the story so far has been what did they know and when did they know it, right? Well, now they know. <laughs> right, it's like, okay, so bygones be bygones. Right. So now you know. Like, and what are you gonna do about it, right? There have been some saying, well, what is he supposed to do? You're going to start a war with Russia over this? Or are you going to just you know, do nothing? Well, why do those have to be the only right. choices? We wait, have wait, a broad what, spectrum. In what, in what universe are the choices nuking Russia and you know, letting them you know, invade the country? There's a fair amount of real estate between those two there, options. There's a little bit, a little bit. All like, right. Maybe uh, not you know, trying to invite them back into the G8, right? Maybe you know, ramping up sanctions against them. I don't know. Maybe. Crazy talk. I mean, if I were if I were a president who liked to say that I was that no president had ever been stronger on Russia, I might try to do one or two things that actually reflected how strong I was on Russia. It's a lot of difference between being tough on Russia and being strong on Russia. Did you see the new Project Lincoln ad? Uh, the one with all the the Russian iconography and all that. The one that's in Russian. I, I didn't listen to. It. I just saw on Twitter there was something flashing by my screen that had a bunch of you know uh, Lenin statue stuff. So it's it's actually the or the audio is in Russian. Yes, with subtitles. Yeah, I you know I, some of those ads have been really strong. Um, some of them, I wonder, I wonder about the persuasion case on some of those. You know, like who's who's having the needle move there? But then I think, well, maybe it's not about persuasion. I maybe think, it's. I don't think Product Lincoln is trying to persuade Trump voters to abandon ship. Right. Right. It's just, it's making points. I also, think, I, I also think, I mean, I mean, this is, I read something this morning, um, you know, Biden, you know, this whole sort of notion that Biden's sort of being too passive and not running an active enough campaign. Well, when your opponent is running your campaign for you, best <laughs> that's thing true. You is let him. That is true. Um, we're going to be treated to an endless parade of ads, uh, all the more so because you can't actually really have the candidates out there on the trail, although Trump's doing his best on that. Um, did you hear, by the way, that Vanilla Ice was supposed to give a concert live here oh, is that in off now? tomorrow? He is finally backed off. Robbie Van Winkle, that's his real name, folks. Robbie Van Winkle from Sherman, Texas. Uh, Robbie has decided the discretion is- as late as last night, it was still, it was still, so you know what, you know what's not off yet, Bobby? Um, our the show. Texas, the Texas bar exam. Yeah, you know, I feel like any moment now that's gonna that's gonna give way. I guess we've had at least one other state this week. Florida. Was, yeah. Um, who you know, wants Florida to go after? Who, who wants to be like? Who wants to be behind Florida? Florida man is not going to have to attend the bar exam, so Texas man should not either. Um, that's a reference to the meme, uh, Florida man. I've never seen that applied to other states, and maybe there's not a Texas analog. Although lately we we seem to be trying for it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll actually give way on that uh, because it seems like they're, this is ultimately the Texas Supreme Court that decides that. Um, and I appreciate that they, they felt like they were going to sort of hold the line and see how things went. But now we're seeing how things are going. And it's, uh, it's not going, Steve, it's not going good here. Not, it's, not going, it's not going well. We've got, uh, 
we've got new records basically every day at this point. And, and uh, not just, I mean, 8,000 plus cases statewide yesterday. But I think this is the important, the, so to me, Bobby, the, the number, you know, the number that really I lose sleep over is not the number of new cases, it's the number of new hospitalizations. Right, of course, that's, and, that's and, where all the action and, is. And that's also up. I mean, right, because you know, for all the people out there who are saying that the numbers are going up because we're testing more, um, hospitalizations are not going up because we're testing more. No, like, that's right. And also, the data also shows that even if you control for rate of testing, positivity rate, which is what actually counts, is also going up. But you're right. If, if everyone's positive in, but asymptomatic or minorly symptomatic, it's still a problem because every one of them can carry it to someone who's vulnerable. But it's not as big a problem as people also ending up at the hospital at a high rate. And even if one says that, well, it is true that some people up in the hospital and we have limited hospital capacity and that's bad, but really most people really just don't have that bad a reaction. The volume is such that even if, even if the percentage who have the, the worst experiences is small, at this volume, that's still too many people suffering and dying. Yep. And that's the bottom line. Are people suffering and dying that wouldn't otherwise? Hey, Absolutely. That's, and that's a, that's vastly, a, rapidly growing numbers. You should run for governor. That seems like a relatively uh, thoughtful way of thinking about these things. Well, I know you and I definitely don't, you know, we don't see eye to eye on, on, on Abbott. Um, he, I, I can't remember if I expressly predicted on our show last time or if it was just me talking afterwards, maybe with my family, but that, that day by day we were going to see a turning of the ship one point at a time from the governor pulling back from the let's open up liberty focus and towards the let's get the masks on, let's start shifting. And I think that's a good way to describe what happened since our last showing is let's, that day by get, day, let's get day by day, he's, he's moved a little bit, definitely not enough to uh, satisfy you and, I, and really not to satisfy me either, but he's been moving steadily since then. Let's get the masks on. Let's get the masks on. I'm sorry, saying, I didn't like, mean to repeat like, you, but I'm waiting for the punchline. Where, where, no, where did Abbott? Where did Abbott say? Where did Abbott say we're doing masks? He has been publicly encouraging people to wear masks. Ah, uh, encouraging people. Got it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Listen, I, I I don't think our listeners want to hear us going back and forth about where, how we feel about Greg Abbott and and masks. Let's turn our attention to Hassoun, the yep. long promised review of the Hassoun decision. Um, so Hassan was a Palestinian man born in Lebanon, but not a Lebanese citizen, which is a root of some of the removal problems that are at issue here. He was in the country uh, in 2001 on a student visa uh, in, with details that I'm not aware of the details of. He, in some way or fashion, was not in compliance with the terms of his student visa. And removal proceedings began in 2002. Uh, they completed, and he was ordered removed in 2003, but there was, a, a, a problem of to where since I gather it wasn't obvious he could go back to Lebanon. Uh, and then B, the government had other concerns about this guy and ended up indicting and arresting and indicting him and shifting in, him into the criminal justice system. Very serious charges. Uh, 18 U.S. Code 96A is the uh, crime of conspiring to kill um, or, or maim, et cetera, overseas. And then there was a companion charge of material support, not under the FTO rule of 2339B, where it's just general material support to a group, but the act-specific or conspiracy-specific version of material support, 2339A, and he was convicted on those counts, so very serious offense. Uh, served his term, got out in 2017, but that just meant he went back into his removal proceedings. He went right back into that limbo of, yes, he's supposed to be removed, but they're not sure where to where to remove him. 
And as, as it became clear he was going to be stuck in limbo, he brought what I think of as sort of a Zadvitas type uh, objection via habeas saying, you can't hold me indefinitely. If you can't remove me at some point, you got to let me go. The district court agreed. Um, and at that point, the government shifted him into custody, continuing custody under a different theory, which the district court had sort of invited the possibility of, including this never before used national security uh, sort of immigration detention authority for aliens that, that is from the USA Patriot Act from 2001. And the standard is basically you can continue to detain the person if, quote, the release of the alien will threaten the national security of the United States or the safety of the community or any person. Um, and so we finally got the district court ruling on uh, a complex set of challenges to that authority. And you want to break it down for us, Steve, Judge Wolford's ruling? So, I mean, she had, a, she had already rejected the challenge to detention based on the rule, right? So we were, we were down to just purely whether 1226A authorized the detention. Right. 8 U.S. Code 1226A. Right. Section 412 of the Patriot Act. And I think what's critical, so in an earlier decision, she had held that the standard, uh, in an earlier decision, she had held that the standard of review was what clear and convincing evidence, right? Um, right. Which is very interesting, actually. Well, right, interesting in the sense that it's higher than what the D.C. Circuit has imposed in the Guantanamo case. Right, exactly. But, exactly. you know, I think, I think I had always assumed, Bobby, that clear and convincing was the standard for U.S. persons, um, right? And, you know, Hassoun may have overstayed his visa, but he was not, you know, he was in the U.S. lawfully, at least for a time, right? And so the government is not arguing that he is without any constitutional protections whatsoever, um, so I so I don't know much about this area of ordinary immigration law. Is it the case that I mean, obviously this statute's never been used for, so this particular circumstance is is brand new. Uh, but is there some clearly analogous immigration setting standard where the standard also would have been clear and convincing evidence rather than preponderance? I think so. I have to go back and look. I think I think clear and convincing is the usual standard in the context of immigration detention. Um, but I have to double check that. But anyway, so and then the. Once, once you get to clear and convincing, obviously, the question is, how does the government provide clear and convincing evidence? And where this case appears to have fallen apart, at least based on Judge Walford's opinion, is one of the government's Bobby principal witnesses apparently has some credibility issues. <laughs> He's got a bit of a track record, it seems. I mean, she really, she destroys this guy. Um, or more to the point, the uh, Hassoun's lawyers destroyed this guy and Judge Walford agreed. So basically, jailhouse informant um, but the, it, but not just a, but a jailhouse informant whose credibility has been called into question in prior cases, right? And where the government knew that but failed to disclose that at the relevant time to either the court or Hassoun's lawyers. Yeah, so she just blows up the quality of the what we could call the inculpatory evidence here, which is you know it's hearsay offered by it by a jailhouse informant with a severe credibility problem. And, and basically leads her to say, look, even if we assume that this provision is constitutional in theory, the standard hasn't been met. And indeed, at one point she says, the government doesn't even deny that, or, or in some way or fashion, she suggested that this, this conceitedly would also have failed the preponderance standard. I was a little fuzzy on how that worked since the government was trying to make the case under the other standard. I assume that they would have tried to make it here as well. But in any event, um, this strikes me as, as an example of, a, a case or an opinion that tells us nothing really about the prospects 
for the authority itself, which is something we've all been wondering about for, well, uh, 19 years, I guess, or going on 19 years. Um, but it tells you a lot about the particular factual foundation in this particular instance. Yeah, um, I also, I mean, what, I'm interested in what happens next. I mean, so Judge Walford had said that she was going to order Hassoun's release as of, I think, 2 p.m. today. Um, ah. Right? And the government asked her for a stay, and she denied the stay, based at least in part on what she had previously held. Um, so then the government made representations that it was going to ask the Court of Appeals for a stay. But Bobby, here's where things get fun. Which Court of Appeals? Uh huh. Well, so what should it be? So the U.S. the the relevant um, the the Patriot Act provision says even though habeas can go to any district court, Bobby, only the D.C. Circuit has appellate jurisdiction. Okay, so it should go to the D.C. Circuit then. Well, except what's weird is um, the case is not purely a challenge to 412. The case is also a challenge to reliance on that rule, right? On the the HCFR which properly goes to the second circuit. So is the government really gonna to go to both the second and the DC circuits for stays or are they just gonna to go to the DC circuit? That's interesting to me. Uh, you know, <laughs> what a mess. And so this is supposed to have happened today. I'm, I'm trying to do a quick search online. Um, it's a, there's not having much luck finding anything here. Oh, wait, four hours ago. There's a stay, release stayed, hold on. Breaking news, give me the breaking news uh, sound effect. This is not helping me. Well, I think I see the same story you're clicking on. Hold up. Somebody had posted a note saying release stayed, but I don't see a description in here. Ah. Well, no, this didn't help at all. The court, it's just a, a memento of the order. A court temporarily staying the release until 12 p.m. today. Um, and so, <laughs> did it happen? Where are we here? All right. I bet our listeners are really enjoying the exciting sounds of us looking online to find this out. This is how things. we prepare. <laughs> no, you know, for, for anyone who's new to the show, I think we said at the outset, um, one of the conditions for doing the show is we are not going to bend over backwards to prepare. We're going to do this when we can, how we can. And sometimes that involves these uh, in-progress, lifelike. Wait, Bobby, I got it. You got it? What's the word? Uh, late yesterday afternoon, I actually totally missed this. Um, the DC Circuit issued an administrative stay, right? So a temporary right, yeah. stay. Um, yeah, right. And that the appellee is supposed to respond by five o'clock next Friday. Ah, okay. All right, there you go. The answer, see, good listeners, by being patient with our digging, you, we got some further information that was useful. Um, and that the that uh, Hassoun's re reply is due, or the government's reply is due by five o'clock on July 15th. So, you know, that's not very fast. I mean, for someone who's basically, you know, arguably entitled to his liberty, that, you know, that's a little slow for my tastes. Um, I think relative to the usual pace of operations in the courts, I can't say it strikes me as crazy or that much out of the ordinary. I agree that if it were me or my loved one, I would want faster action, but it didn't strike me as too far outside the lane. I, I guess... But, also, but, but they're not, I mean, as, as we're saying, though, right, we're not, they're not fighting about like the legal question here, right? They're fighting right. about the factual presentation. Yeah. Well, and one thing that's interesting to say about that, and then maybe we should move on since it seems like it just doesn't get to any larger picture issues other than just to show you an example of how in theory this could be used, but why it's not a, why it's not a gimme either. Um, um, the, by the way, the second circuit issued an administrative stay as well with a similar <laughs> timeline. 
So it's basically like got a dual track. This is sort of some sort of Schroeder's uh, cat or something. Is it in the DC circuit? Is it in the second circuit? Which one is it? Um, it's really, this is really weird. That's um, weird. I mean, I, I, maybe I that's why know. they need more time to sort out which court it should be in. But I mean, I actually think this is a reason. I mean, I, I think that I think that Hassoun has a pretty good argument against being in the second circuit on a stay anyway, because the mere fact that there's a serious question as to whether the second circuit has jurisdiction seems like a pretty powerful lever against likelihood of success on the merits for the government, right? Versus the DC circuit where everyone agrees there's properly jurisdiction. But yeah. the flip side is the government may prefer the panel it gets in the second circuit to the panel it has in the DC circuit. That's right. You want to see what a mess. Um, do you think it's in, in, it seems to have played no role. His, his charge on which he was convicted and served time. I, maybe I missed it in reading through because I did skim it and maybe I read it too quickly. It didn't seem to play any role in the factual case for his future dangerousness. Do you think that's because a, the particular offense, I don't recall the details of which just didn't have a U.S. nexus, but were external only is it B that it's somehow inappropriate to consider it as to future dangerousness on sort of a, Hey, you've done your time for your crime theory. Um, any, any theory on, on why the prior conviction didn't bolster the I mean, case? I, more? Bobby, I, I assume that it was that the government didn't make a big deal out of it in its papers, right? Otherwise I assume judge, you know, judge Wolford would have talked more about it. Yeah, no, it does seem they kind of looked elsewhere. That's that in itself is very interesting. It seems, yeah. it certainly seems material. In any event, all right. So that's as soon we'll 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 have him as a recurring guest on the show as yep. uh, we wait to see how the appeal goes. Um, you another recurring without Assange, right? So another recurring guest is our our man Julian Assange. Now, um, what's going on that really matters here, aside from the the inherent interest of anything involving a prosecution of Julian Assange and questions about WikiLeaks? Uh, the reason there's a bigger picture question is that. Uh, when DOJ indicted Assange for violating the Espionage Act in various ways, it really raised a serious question about freedom of the press. It's, it's long been understood that, in theory, the Espionage Act might be used to go after not just leakers themselves, leakers of national defense information, who have been gone after in the past, but those to whom they leak, who then transmit more broadly to the public, and for all the talk about and recognition that the statute on paper seemed to maybe apply in those cases, no one had ever crossed that line. We'd, we'd come kind of close with the APAC case in 2005. There were two lobbyists who uh, received classified or national defense information, passed it on uh, to the Israelis, and there was an attempted prosecution that became a big train wreck and ultimately fell apart. Um, so then Assange gets indicted, and the super, not the initial indictment, but the superseding first indictment, first superseding indictment, had uh, really kind of emphasized in various ways his role in, in publishing leaked national defense information that Manning, among others, had, had provided. And it really raised the question, could you really distinguish his situation from that of run-of-the-mill journalists who are very much often in the business of cajoling and persuading people with access to such information to share it? Um, and the, the distinction that was offered by DOJ and by others that I, th I found fairly persuasive at the time, even as it stood then, was that, well, look, there, if you read the complaint, the allegations carefully, the indictment alleges not just that he was um, cajoling, but he was actively involved in facilitating uh, violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that were being used to then extract the information. What's important about this new, that, 
that was an okay argument, I think. Um, it wasn't overwhelming because there was a lot of other stuff in the indictment as well, and that seemed to play a relatively small role. So the second superseding indictment from about a week and a half ago, I think matters because it shifts the center of gravity of the allegations still more towards the active, uh, active, if you will, um, not just solicitation. Well, let me, let, me, let me say plainly what I mean. As I read it now, where they talk about Assange's role in reaching out to the guy who was the, the, the leader of LOLSEC, um, who, who unfortunately for Assange turned out not only to be a hacker, but also by that point, a confidential informant for the FBI. Um, it wasn't just, hey, got anything for me. It was, hey, I really want you to go hack the following. And, and you get this picture of a distinction where the traditional reporter is trying to find out if people who have access to national defense information will leak it. Assange does some of that, but also does a lot of, hey, I want you to break the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and here's some technical help, and here's some encouragement to go steal the information yourself, then give it to me. Um, that, to me, does provide a pretty substantial distinction to where prosecuting Assange doesn't necessarily carry with it uh, vulnerability for run-of-the-mill reporters uh, that you see at the New York Times and elsewhere. But does that persuade you? Does that, does that give you enough uh, comfort that there's, that there's still a firewall between Assange and traditional journalism? I think it depends on how it plays out. I think it depends on, on what's actually introduced at trial, Bobby, to substantiate the, that theory and what the jury finds, right? I mean, I think, you know, there's still a lot of room for the trial judge here. And, and I'm, I'm not yet totally satisfied by this, but I think it's at least a a half a step in the right direction. You're, you're right that in the pretrial litigation, we presumably will see a motion at some point, a motion to dismiss the charges on free press grounds. Absolutely. And I think that'll be the moment where you can easily see what's happening here is that bit by bit, the, the prosecutors working with the grand jury are, they're developing their case in a direction that will better enable it to withstand, uh, enable the judge to write an opinion that doesn't have to throw uh, uh, regular journalism under the bus and, and draw a line that I think from a policy perspective may be an attractive one or is an attractive one. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Uh, what, about, what about the clash between liberties and government prosecution and investigations? There's my segue to the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act, Senate Bill 4051. Hey, hey. Um, all right, so what does the LEAD Act do? What's the context? This is all about going dark, and this has been coming for a long time. Is it LEAD or LED? Um, good act. A good idea. I, I would think LEAD has more of a resonance with... I know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just making a joke about, about using a word as an acronym that, is, that is, has multiple, multiple uh, sounds. It's, it's definitely not the most painful acronym going around in Congress right now. That honor must go to the Earn It Act, which I, the Earn It Act is about... Um, limiting section 230 uh, immunity in a way that you know you only get that as a as a plat as a computer service provider um, if you've done certain things that are cooperative with investigations on things like child abuse but the the acronym stands for some I, I think it's uh, earning something rampant blah 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 I mean they really were at pains to be able to say earn it um, Anyways, wait, that's wait, not wait, wait, I actually there. want to find the acronym because now you have me. Now you now you have me right. intrigued. You you go find it. It is it is it, pretty funny. It's, it it's, is the eliminating abusive and rampant neglect of interactive technologies act. There you go. <laughs> that's, 
that desire, it's kind of of a piece with larvae articles that we all do when we're new and we're students that are like, take a pun and then run with it two miles further than you should then have the colon that tells you what right. the article the cow, is about. The cow is out of the barn, colon, a yeah. new twist on an old theory of substantive due process. Uh, we've all been there. We've all done it, but don't do it. I all really right, so don't think I have. So someone came after me on, um, um, Karen and I had this whole exchange on Twitter about how the books I read all have colons in their titles. And someone was like, just like your lot of your articles. And I actually went, look, most of my articles do not have colons in their titles. So as, as you well know, and as many uh, academics listening, if there are any, uh, well know, it became uh, a subtle mark of sophistication or perceived as such in many circles to have the shortest possible title. Well, uh, precisely because there was a, you know, commonplace pattern of, sort of a, a, some kind of funny quote, colon, then the explanation. And so people started doing really short, really uh, brief titles. And, and, I mean, Bobby, I can't speak for you, but at least for me, the real, the, the voice in my head on that was always Dan Markell. Uh, I can relate to that, absolutely. Right? Um, you know, our, our, our late, yeah, our late friend and former colleague, Dan Markell. Um, you know, Dan and I came up about the same time and Dan had this knack at workshops for not necessarily giving you especially good substantive feedback on papers, but for titling your paper. Like you could always go to Dan and he'd title your paper. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you, do you, some of your papers sport actual Markel titles? Um, I don't know that, I don't think any of them were titles that Dan picked, but I think his influence is, is, is very much part of their brevity. Yeah, I have not resisted the, you know, bug entirely uh, right. I've, I've had a few short ones every but, once uh, in a while you need a long one but yeah you got, you got to vary that all right so the lead act what's going on here this is about the going dark phenomenon where uh, it, it's critical to begin by distinguishing two different scenarios data in motion so live capture of communications while they're in transit data at rest data in motion may be encrypted end to end and so there could be a scenario where the government's got a fourth amendment um, warrant or a, or a fisc order to have the lawful right to access it, but in practice, as a practical feasibility matter, it can't get plain text. It can only, by executing the warrant, it might only get um, the cipher text. Uh, then there's the communication at rest, where it might be in plain text on an app on your device, but the device itself is encrypted. And in either way, encryption would stand in the way of the practical execution of the already obtained court-issued warrant. So again, the beginning of the conversation is the government has the lawful right to access the information, court signed off on it, but there's a practical barrier. And over time, the, the array of scenarios in which data in motion or data at rest is practically beyond the reach, or at least arguably beyond the reach of the government, uh, is growing because we've, we're expanding the, the availability of encryption both on our devices and in our platform communications. And on the whole, that expansion is a really good thing because that's where our commercial lives increasingly play out, our personal lives, our social lives, our political lives, et cetera. And privacy of, of those communications is important. On the other hand, I think it's equally clear there's, there is a cost because uh, but by the exact same token, that's where a lot of evidence of crime and indeed some criminal wrongdoing is increasingly taking place. So it's a real clash between uh, very important societal interests. It's a immovable force and an irresistible force and an immovable object sort of thing. The government's been talking for a long time, in particular FBI and then under Bard, the DOJ especially, about how some sort of legislative intervention uh, to compel companies who create these encryption uh, mechanisms, either for the platforms they support or 
or for the devices they create, maybe there should be legislative intervention to somehow or other uh, compel them to have an ability to execute uh, those warrants and to get to the plain text. That is to engineer it and, and put a different way to not engineer systems and devices for which that's practically impossible, that the company doesn't have the ability to do it, only the users can. Um, and they went ahead and pulled the trigger in this act, which again is not going to become law. This is not going to get out of the House of Representatives. Uh, won't even make the floor there, I suspect. Um, but it's a marker that's been put down the table. And for the first time, we see a full-fledged uh, drafting of a bill from the, those who would like there to be this intervention. And let me just describe at a very high level of generality how it does it. It's, it's very interesting. Um, it, there, the big question overhanging this debate is, how could you possibly create this sort of uh, authorized access mechanism on the part of the company without thereby creating a vulnerability that will have devastating results if and when it ever gets into other hands or gets discovered or taken advantage of by others? And um, the answer turns out to be uh, they don't actually know. They're just going to direct these vendors to find a way. It's not for the government on this model to figure it out. It's for the vendors to figure it out. So for uh, data at rest on a device or data at rest in the cloud, the idea is the court, in addition to issuing the regular warrant, could issue a supplemental order requiring the vendor to, uh, to furnish all information, facilities, or assistance necessary to enable the uh, warrant to actually access plaintext. It's a, as several people have said, it's just do it. You figure out how. Um, the vendor will be paid for their trouble. They'll get immunity from being sued. Um, and, and then here's the kicker. You, you can't pre-engineer your system to make this impossible. You have to make it possible if you've either sold more than a million consumer electronic devices in any given year starting in 2016, or in any event, even if you're new and small, once you've received an assistance capability directive at least one time. Now, what, what's the assistance capability directive? This is the part where the attorney general can direct these providers and vendors in advance and send them a directive after making certain findings saying, time for you to get to work on creating this capability and, and basically put the onus on them to report back to DOJ on their plans and their timeline for doing so. And then there's a parallel provision to this for uh, communications in motion as well. So there's other stuff in the bill, you know, a prize for coming up with an innovation, innovative way to kind of have it both ways, some pin register trap and trace stuff. Um, for a long time, people have been waiting to see what a pro-investigative bill would describe as the way to safely do this. This doesn't do that. This just puts the onus on the companies to find a way to make it happen. And it, and it sort of skirts the, but will it be safe? Will they be able to come up with something that's sufficiently safe? it skirts that issue entirely. And so it's not going to make people happy. And indeed, it has not made people happy on the privacy side. Um, something tells me it no get through the House. Nope. And uh, depending on how the election goes, that may be the last you hear this for a long time. Um, then again, long time between now and November. So who knows? What are we going to do? If, depending on, I mean, if the, election, if the election goes a particular way, we may have a lot less to talk about on this podcast. Oh, I don't think so. That's what everybody said back in when, when Obama seceded. seceded uh, which there were people saying like, oh, the war on terrorism is going to go away. Everything's going to be. I've, I've, I've told you the story about how when I gave my job talk at Miami in October of 2004, one of the questions was, what are you going to write about when Kerry wins? <laughs> <laughs> I have complete faith that our topics may shift. Uh, we'll obviously have 
I, first of all, I don't think we'll have, have less, less Trumplandia to talk about, even if Trump's not in office. Right, there, there's um, going to be some cleanup. There's going to be all kinds of aftermath. And clean, 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 up, clean, up, clean up on aisle Trump. But I will, <laughs> I will say there's nothing I would like more than to have less need for rule of law discussion on the show and more actual core national security law discussion. Can I and I will just point out, as we occasionally do, um, we continue to be using force against a variety of organizations out there around the world. It's just that we don't have any bandwidth in our national media to talk about it. But Somalia, various other locations, Yemen, who knows where else, uh, things are still happening. I'd love to get back to talking about that. Um, can we? Um, um, can I? Can I nominate uh, uh, "Clean Up on Isle Trump" as a potential backup episode title? Oh, that's good. Zoom where it happened. Clean up on Isle Trump. All right. Um, let's do pretty lightning round on what's happening at the Supreme Court. What are the highlights, Steve? There's a lot going on, um, and I actually think it has more. I mean, in a different time, I actually think this would have made more headlines on our show. Um, so let me run through two decisions that have come out this week, and then some news. Um, so. You know, I actually think that the, the CFPB case, right, and its classic, you know, uh, appointment and removal questions, um, Bobby, is pretty relevant to broader discussions of executive power. For sure. Um, you know, I think the, the running sort of line of cases about just what degree of control the president must have over executive branch officers, um, I think has a ton of consequences for our field. Um, and, you know, I... I'll just say this, I mean, what the Supreme Court held on Monday in the CFPB case is that um, Congress, by creating this independent agency, the CFPB, but only having a single director who's protected from removal except for cause, that that violates the separation of powers. Um, now, what's tricky about this case is we have these independent agencies with multi-member commissions, right? So the, the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And under Humphrey's executor, this, you know, 85-year-old critical Supreme Court case, those have always been upheld. The court says, yes, but we're limiting that, like, basically, we're limiting Humphrey's executor and Morrison to its facts. And so any effort by Congress to innovate when it comes to new independence in the executive branch, Bobby, I think is going to have real trouble with the current court after this decision. That's a big deal, I think, not just from the perspective of the independence of the CFPB, but when we think about what Congress might do after Trump, like what would Congress try to have inspectors general have for cause removal protections, like anything like that. The Chief Justice's opinion in the CFPB case articulates a sort of anti-novelty rule where, you know, novel efforts by Congress to, to create independence or protection in the executive branch are presumptively unconstitutional. I think that's a pretty big deal, even if folks are not necessarily losing sleep over the CFPB head him or herself being subject to removal at will. No, I think it's right that this was a very strong, uh, in the spirit of the unitary executive concept, that splitting off atoms, as it were, from the, the executive function is, is at best being painfully tolerated on the strength of pra uh, judicial precedent. And two, and two of the justices actually were, were you know, Thomas and Gorsuch were like, yeah, Humphrey's executive, let's just get rid of it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we could go round and round about the, the vesting of the executive power and the executive branch. We have a real, we have a really interesting difference addressing these issues in 2020, where we have a century of development and therefore practical precedent and some judicial precedent, rather than looking at it on a blank slate. I, I, so I, I'm sorry. Commitments on theories of interpretation of the Constitution, Constitution loom really large here. I, I agree with all that. I would just add that, and this is just me talking, 
Um, I think we have seen over the last three and a half years the dangers of the unitary executive theory when, le when left to its full, to run its full devices. If um, one is a consequentialist, then that obviously is a, is a powerful argument. And if one rejects the idea that we should interpret the text, et cetera, based on the consequences and policy preferences, those, so oh, Thomas, wait, wait, okay. so, so Thomas and Gorsuch, as you just said, yeah. are ready to ditch this whole deal. And that's exactly, that's, you know, part of why, because they're not, they're not going to give weight to those types of arguments. Okay, so we don't have time to do this properly, but I just wanna say the removal cases have nothing to do with text, right? I mean, the, the whole sort of, you know, yes, there's an appointments clause in the constitution. The appointments clause is a textual commitment of authority of the president. Um, the removal jurisprudence is entirely a creation of the Supreme Court, right? There's nothing in article, there's no removal clause in article two. What, do you think Thomas and or Gorsuch would say, well, no, the text of the vesting itself, the vesting clause by vesting the entirety of the executive power in the president is the textual basis for uh, being skeptical of restrictions on the president's removal power. That's what they would say. And I think my response and, and much more importantly, Justice Kagan's, I think, far more effective response is um, that reading reads out of the Constitution the role Congress clearly has in creating the office in the first place in setting its terms, in defining its duties, and in circumscribing its jurisdiction, right? And so, you know, on, on the, the reading of the vesting clause that requires the president to have plenary control over executive branch officers is also one that should be hostile to the idea that Congress is controlling the office, right? And I think that's, that's where I, I mean, we don't have time to do this justice, but yeah. you know, one of our topics for when we're not responding to headlines every week should definitely, be, I'll, I'll just go on record saying that I'm not so persuaded, but know, of course. All right. Um, also on Monday, actually, the, the decision that got the least attention on Monday, Bobby, is perhaps the one most relevant to us, um, which is in the USAID case where Justice Kavanaugh, writing for a 5-4 majority, um, went very came very close to holding that the Constitution does not apply to non-U.S. persons outside the United States. Um, the specific question in that case was about whether the First Amendment protects the foreign affiliates of U.S. agencies and entities that are doing business solely on foreign soil. And Kavanaugh said no, which was relevant because that's how they distinguish an earlier case about whether the US could impose a speech restriction on US corporations doing business overseas and US agencies. Um, but I think you and I, 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 you know, Kavanaugh goes very, Justice Kennedy, right, in his jurisprudence had seemed to be embracing a more functional approach to the extraterritorial application of the constitution to non-citizens. And Kavanaugh um, seems more formalistic in his opinion, I think I can say without getting into too much trouble. Uh, so uh, this is interesting. Um, I would say that it is perfectly clear that non-US persons, not in the United States and not on a quasi-US controlled territory like Guantanamo, don't have constitutional rights and that there's ample case law like uh, Johnson v. Eisentrager or Verdugo or Quidez to, to reinforce that. And I didn't see that as a, a, a surprising or controversial or interesting. So that's what. So that's event. exactly what Kavanaugh says. And, right. and then along comes someone like me who says, "Well, Eisentrager can be read lots of different ways." Sure. And Kennedy wrote a narrower opinion in Verdugo or Quidez that seemed to suggest that he wasn't adopting a categorical on-off switch. But anyway. yeah, well, I, I wasn't claiming that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence is perfectly clear on the point. But I will say this: I don't think we have a single case that's clear in the opposite direction that doesn't have some confounding, like Boumediene's sort of a confounding factor. But if you talk about people who are, let's say, Vladimir Putin in Moscow, yes. there is no claim, I think, 
that he has anything resembling a constitutional right. How about, how about Rahina Ibrahim in Malaysia? Give me more context of what you're right. imagining. Uh, um, uh, Non-citizen who, who had been teaching in the U.S., um, who's expecting a return to the U.S., but who goes back to Malaysia. Does she have constitutional rights while she's in Malaysia? She's a non-citizen. What was her status in the United States? I'm she sorry, was, I'm not familiar with the case. I want to say an employment visa, but I, I, don't, but, I don't. But is the visa still in force? Does she yes. have the visa? Yes. Um, you know, I don't know. I think that the, if I'd have to know the details of what the grounds for excluding the person, but if the underlying issue is what about constitutional rights? Um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll concede that someone who has been in the United States and established some sort of territorial tie, albeit of a uh, formally temporary nature, such as a student visa, I don't think that gives, that certainly doesn't give them the same constitutional rights an American citizen might have, but, but also is not remotely the same thing as most people elsewhere in the I, world. I, I, listen, I, you, I agree that 99% of the case of non-U.S. person cases are easy. I just don't agree that 100% are. Right? There you go. I, I, can, I can sign on to that. I can, okay. I can definitely agree that there are some edge cases that are okay. hard. Uh, but, but the key is that here we see Kavanaugh instead of Kennedy, right? That, that once again, for the second time in two weeks, we see a big area of interest to you and I, where the difference between Kavanaugh and Kennedy is a much sharper line, right, than Kennedy might have been comfortable drawing. So you think in this instance, Kav um, Kennedy might have actually gone the other way in a Boumediene-like way? Or wanted some kind of narrower way to avoid the question as yeah. opposed to... I, I'll, I'll definitely sign on that he very likely would have would said something that would have been hard to parse that would have kind of tried to occupy a middle ground And on flowery. It. Um, all right, really quickly, because we're out of time. Um, Three, uh, sorry, five cert grants today that I think are actually worth noting very quickly. First, the court grants cert on the Mueller grand jury materials. They granted DOJ's petition to take up whether the, um, was it Rule 60 applies to grand jury materials? Uh, or, sorry, whether, I'm sorry, whether Rule 60 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure applies to Congress, right? That's to say, is Congress allowed to subpoena grand jury materials? Um, I think the, the real bottom line there, Bobby, is by granting and not expediting, the court is effectively mooting that case. Because by the time the court decides it, we'll have a new Congress. Um, so, yay. Um, the court also granted, again, the question of whether the alien tort statute applies to corporations. Oh, right. This is the Nestle case? <laughs> Nestle. Um, so this is the third time. Again, Kavanaugh instead of Kennedy, right? Kennedy, the, the court granted this question twice previously, and both times, led by Kennedy, they answered a different question. Right. Yeah, we might get we might get a more definitive answer this time, and I imagine it's not going to be expansive of the old yes. alien tort statute. Um, and then we also got two grants in Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act cases, um, which you know, interesting. The foreign relations scholars, um, it's it, it's it's odd that these all come on the same day. It's a very heavy sort of separation of powers and foreign relations yes. uh, docket. I like um, it. All right, and then really quickly, we promised for frivolity. Um, Hamill film is dropping tomorrow. Oh, yeah, night, let's Bobby. take our time. This deserves some, let's not rush through this. I don't mind uh, being late to my next thing so that we can properly discuss. Hey, you're the one with the, you're the, one with the deadline. Yes, it's okay. Let's take our time here. So um, Hamilton's going to stream on Disney Plus uh, tomorrow. It's going to be a uh, big, big to-do. It'll be really fun because it'll be a, uh, an unusually well-filmed live musical performance, kind of straddling the line between just watching the video of a musical uh, as it's been, as if you're sitting there on the, on this, you know, in the good seats and a movie version of it, a la, you know, I don't know, blame is the movie. So I'm excited about that, but you had a, a suggestion that we talk about the music and not about the, the upcoming stream, but this, the show itself. Do you have a favorite song from uh, the do. many options? I do. All right. Satisfied. 
Uh, very interesting. You were gonna say that. Um, I have that. I wasn't gonna necessarily say it was my favorite, but I have something I want to say about that one musically. Tell me about why that one appeals to you so much. Um, I love Angelica in it. I love, um, you know, I love um, the sort of the way the the emotion in the song, the sort of the power of the song. Um, I love how Renee Elise Goldsberry, you know, sort of performs it. Um, it's such a. I mean, I, it's so rich about a sister you know, sort of subordinating her interest for her, for her sister. Um, you know, the, the staging of when they do the rewind, um, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I'm really excited for folks who have never seen it in person and who've only heard the song to actually see what it looks like because that part actually makes so much more sense visually. Yeah, more, it, it maybe matters more visually than, and it's doing something more abstract, obviously, with its rewind element. Than, so I, think, uh, I think the two things, folks who have never seen it and who have only heard it are going to be surprised, or not surprised, but are going to be sort of mesmerized by two things in particular. One is how that song is staged. I think, Bobby, the other thing that I think will surprise folks is how often we see King George. Oh, yeah, right. Like, and, and including not always saying things. He, no, he's silently on stage a lot and in some really funny and apt moments. And I think, like, you, you know, obviously, you don't, you know, he only has three songs. Um, and no other speaking part. And so, you know, if you just listen to the soundtrack, you think, oh, George, whatever. But he's comic relief here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you're going to love this. So, what I was going to talk about was a podcast that I got hooked on um, that has an episode that's from a while back that's about Satisfied. Ah. And it actually got re upped just this past week or so in honor of the upcoming stream. This podcast is unbelievable. If you like, if you're really into music, Strong Songs from Kirk Hamilton. Kirk is, is in Portland. Um, he also does a video game podcast with Triple Click, but Strong Songs is a deep and, and, and fun musical theory breakdown. I, and I mean a full breakdown, a deconstruction and rebuild of songs. And he does one on uh, Satisfied. And so I've been listening to that this morning just by coincidence. Um, so here are just a few observations I'll cherry pick and just encourage listeners. If you're interested in what makes uh, songs tick, if you've, if you've ever had a music teacher who just got so excited and passionate about how a song was constructed melodically, rhythmically, harmonically, performance-wise, lyrics-wise, um, you're just going to love Kirk's show. So, I mean, he gets almost giddy with enthusiasm for some of the, the little Easter eggs that are in there. Um, if you, if you examine, um, satisfied along with, uh, in, in pair with helpless. So uh, helpless is, is sort of fun, upbeat and happy and, and major key and all the rest. And then of course, you've got the much more melancholy, bittersweet, minor key, satisfied that falls afterwards. Um, but there's really neat little musical nuggets. So for example, the, the famous you know, sister's first appearance when they see Angelica, Eliza and Peggy, um, that whole bit, the notes that they're singing there as they say their names for each of them are their three or four notes signature thematic notes they're the motifs that occur again and again and so angelica's hers is woven so thoroughly into every aspect of satisfied and what's cool is if you break it down play it slowly and he does it for you on piano you hear in the this sort of arpeggiated uh, uh, performance that's the background kind of rising and falling sound and satisfied it's it's her signature notes going up in order and then reversing and rewind 
And then, and then once they go into the rewind segment, there's all sorts of, of further gaming with it. But the best part is when they then get into the part of the, her flashback where you finally belatedly get to actually see her meet Hamilton and they have their little flirtatious moment where she kind of falls for him. And, um, you know, he says his name when he introduces himself and he does it with his signature, Alexander Hamilton. Right. And she kind of playfully comes back, oh, where is your family from? Whatever. Uh, she bounces his melody back at him, not just his, not just his, the banter, but the music's banter. Right. No, no, it's, it's the layering is so sophisticated. No, but here's the punchline. When she says her own name to him for the first time, she actually doesn't use her own motif right. that one My time. She Angelica uses Eliza. She uses Eliza's melody. It's so cool. It's such a nice little foreshadowing of, of just how this is going to go. Anyways, that's a treat. If you're not into music theory, uh, then you're probably hating this detailed description. But don't take it from me. Take it from Kirk. He's awesome. And listen to his show and subscribe to it. I also want to plug. So my, I went to summer camp with Michael Schulman, who's now this incredibly um, clever and smart and talented uh, culture writer for The New Yorker. Um, and, and, and Michael had a, a piece about the, the top 10 Broadway showstoppers. Um, and I think it was just from that year, but, and, you know, like four Hamilton songs from the top 10, <laughs> but Satisfied was, was the clear number one. And I, I, I thoroughly, so one of the plug though, um, Satisfied I think is the song that really grabs me, but um, the father in me, right? Cries just about every time I hear Dear Theodosia and yeah. It's Quiet Uptown. Yeah, Dear Theodosia is uh, some of the most beautiful harmony in the show, and a show that's got a lot of good harmony, um, but their voices come together in such an astonishing way. And of course, the you know it's it it tugs at your heartstrings like uh, like nothing else. Well, I'm sure we've tugged at our readers, our listeners' heartstrings. But man, I mean, this lovely I just, discussion if, if of national spend, security if we could just law. Spend the Fourth of July, you know, homebound. What better way to do it than watching Hamilton? Over and over and over again on Disney Plus. <laughs> I'm gonna. I promise to watch it at least once. Uh, oh, oh! I'll, I'll take the over on that. <laughs> um, all awesome. Right. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, stay safe out there, everybody. Happy Fourth of July. Um, good luck. Adios. <laughs>